0: We'll hear argument first this morning, number 897024, Warren McCleskey versus Walter D. Zahn. Mr. Boger. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, this is a case
1: about state misconduct in a criminal trial, a Messiah violation, about how that misconduct was hidden by certain state police officers and other officials for nine years, and about how both the underlying misconduct and the conspiracy that hid it, subsequently came to light. The case presents two legal issues. The first is whether petitioners should now be entitled to assert that Messiah violation on a second federal application for a writ of habeas corpus, or whether, on the contrary, he should be held to have used the writ. The second issue is whether the state's use of the fruits of its misconduct, Confession that was obtained from Mr. McCleskey in the cell was somehow harmless error at both the guilt and the penalty phases of Mr. McCluskey's trial.
0: Mr. Bulger, the Court of Appeals uh, didn't pass on the question whether there was a Messiah violation, did it? That's correct, Your Honor. They, they said they were divided as to it? I believe that's right, Your Honor. Uh, as I recall,
1: one of the uh, judges on this circuit uh, questioned whether a Messiah violation was possible absent a payment of money between the informant and, and the uh, Police, and so that issue at least I know was, was flagged. Let me address the issue of abuse first. In Amadeo versus Kemp, decided by this court two terms ago, the court was presented with another case in which intentional state misconduct, there a jury discrimination claim, came to light while Amadeo's case was still on direct appeal. For that reason, the issue of whether Amadeo could present that evidence in a federal application, was fought out in the context of procedural default. But in resolving the issue in Amadeo, the court undertook an analysis that drew on uh, doctrine it had long employed in the area uh, of abuse law. The court indicated that Amadeo could excuse his failure to raise the claim earlier if he could demonstrate three things. First, that some objective factor external to the defense some interference by state officials had impeded or impaired Mr. Amadeo's ability to identify and prosecute that claim. Second, that the violation was not reasonably discoverable independently of state concealment. And third, that the state concealment itself, and not some other tactical consideration of counsel, had led Amadeo to bypass the claim. Now, in the case before the court this morning, The district judge, Owen Forrester, necessarily found himself confronting questions very similar to those addressed in Amadeo, and after an extensive hearing of almost a day's length, he made fact findings on those questions. He found first that Atlanta police officers had not only violated Messiah, but had actively concealed that violation. They had, as he put it at one point, lied and lied well in a complicated conspiracy. He also found that the evidence which would have proven this Messiah violation was not reasonably discoverable by counsel. And finally, he found that petitioner's deliberate abandonment of the Messiah claim after state proceedings was prompted not by any independent tactical considerations, but solely because of counsel's inability to discover the underlying evidence in support of his claim, evidence that state officials were, in fact, actively concealing from him. Having made these specific findings, the district court concluded that Petitioner was not guilty of inexcusable neglect, there was an excuse, or of deliberate abandonment, since the abandonment was not fully knowing of the premises.
2: And it's it's not clear to me, Counsel, why Worthy's testimony uh, is the, the critical turning point. Why couldn't Evans have testified and established at least some of the basis for the Messiah claim. well, now, they, been, they knew who Evans was, and they had the opportunity to depose him, or at least to ask the district court for permission to depose him well, he under actually, Rule 6.
1: He actually appeared, Your Honor, as a witness in the state habeas proceedings. And he was asked a long series of questions, which I refer to in uh, footnote 10 of my brief. He was asked whether there was any special reason. He was put in the cell next to McCleskey. He was asked about his relationships with the police officers. He was asked about... Uh, uh, what was the, the point of his being put there, he gave answers that were totally non-responsive on the issues of a possible Messiah violation. So, had we gone to the district judge and said, we want more deposition of Opie Evans, the judge would have said, what have you done? And we, we would have said, we put him under oath. And the judge would have asked, well, what did you get? And the answer really was nothing, no evidence for Messiah violation.
2: Evans said, said nothing about conversations with the police officials or...?
1: He did indicate that he had had a conversation with police officials, and he indicated that one of the officers said he would speak a word for uh, for Evans in exchange for his testimony. That became the basis for our Giglio claim, which we did pursue in Federal habeas corpus. But when pressed about whether there was any special reason he was put in the cell next to McCluskey, asked about whether you had been an informant on subsequent occasions or otherwise worked with the police officers uh, as an informant, his answer didn't reveal anything about is, this relationship.
2: Is it the, the, your theory now that uh, Evans cooked up this story about being a relative of one of the parties uh, with the police or so that he invented all this on his own?
1: We don't have evidence about which part of this is his own uh, invention and which part comes from the police, but it's plain that he is a man on a mission that he comes in not simply to hear what he can hear, but with the story. I was the uncle of the uh, of, uh, co-defendant. I would have been in on this robbery. Please tell me, where are the guns? Because the guns hadn't been located by the police. Tell me where uh, who did the shooting. Uh, and, and moreover, evidence we point to, uh, to, to link the police. Uh, he says, I understand you, you, that you're telling the police in, in private uh, conversations uh, in the police station, that Ben Wright did the shooting. That evidence, our knowledge, was not known to the public, and we think could would come only from the police officers themselves.
2: Well, something. but that was evident uh, at the time you, uh, let's not use the word abandoned, declined to proceed with the Messiah claim. The man on the mission theory was visible, it was obvious. No, Your
1: Honor, we didn't have Evans's 21-page statement until June of 1987.
2: There are really two... Well, what is there in the statement that wasn't in his testimony?
1: Uh, this, the statement makes uh, d- uh, quite clear that he's talking about uh, this evidence that, uh, that you're telling the police something uh, that uh, I've heard uh, that, that puts the... Uh, Puts the uh, crime on Ben Wright, uh, that evidence w- didn't come out at trial. It wasn't suggestive of a, of a Messiah violation. Uh, and, and furthermore, the detail that, uh, in which he elaborated uh, in the 21-page statement, his, his course of questioning was quite different than what we learned uh, at the time of the trial. At the time of the trial, it really sounded like McCluskey himself had volunteered most of this information. What we see in the 21-page statement is an active, aggressive questioner. As, as the district judge found, you know, the district judge on page 84 of the joint appendix said that the, the 21-page statement is strong evidence of an ab initio relationship between Evans and the police. So there were really two prongs to, to uh, our Messiah violation once it unfolded. And one was this statement. And one was Ulysses Worthy's testimony. Now, the Court of Appeals uh, dismisses the fact finding about the 21-page statement. It, it says it really wasn't anything except perhaps a prod to, to further inquiry. But the district judge made a contrary fact-finding, and it was not, uh, in our judgment, reasonably
3: or clearly erroneous. Well Why, why didn't your predecessor ask for uh, or attempt to obtain the written statement?
1: There was a series of requests uh, Your Honor made for that statement, beginning prior to the trial. There was actually a motion filed by trial counsel, John. That, that led to the in-camera hearing. That led to the in-camera hearing. That was renewed, uh, the request for a statement, during uh, colloquy uh, on the examination of uh, Warren McCleskey as the prosecutor began to ask questions that appear
3: to uh, set the foundation for an inconsistent statement. All right, but at the time of the first habeas, uh, there was at least a, a some degree of suspicion that there might have been a messiah violation. Indeed. Why wasn't that the time? Uh, to, to make every effort to get that written statement, which well, what, presumably would have been very germane evidence.
1: We agree, Your Honor, and in fact a deposition was held of the prosecutor, and part of the deposition was an agreement which was incorporated in the letter which we've included in the Joint Appendix, in which an assistant attorney general, Nicholas Dumich, says, I am turning over the complete prosecutor's
3: file in this case. Yeah, but you, the file didn't include the written statement, did it? But we had no knowledge that a written statement existed. Indeed, everything... Uh, I, I've, then I, I'm confused on the facts, then, because I thought you had an indication from the in-camera ruling at the time of trial that there was a written statement. No, Your Honor. Uh, we had
1: uh, we had an indication that there were two things that were being withheld. One was grand jury minutes, and the other one was not identified. Indeed...
4: Well, it was identified to this extent. It, it was said, he has a statement. Referring to Evans, he has a statement which was furnished to the court, but it doesn't help your client. Well, let let me get the chronology. What what could that have referred to, unless it Uh, was this?
1: Let me get the chronology straight uh, on that, Justice Scalia. There had been a statement uh, during the trial by the judge in the colloquy. I don't know that we're talking about any written statement. On appeal, the Georgia Supreme Court had said, the evidence which you're seeking came out in its entirety through the testimony of Opie Evans. We then got an agreement to get the entire prosecutor's file. During the uh, state habeas proceedings, the defense counsel said, I had an agreement with the prosecutor. He gave me all of the witness statements prior to the time each witness testified. That's the backdrop. During which, uh, the, when Mr. Straup asked the prosecutor about the testimony of Evans, the prosecutor makes the remark in passing that you uh, referred to. Mr. Straub
5: testified, he had
4: really misapprehended... This wasn't the prosecutor. This this statement was made by the trial court, as I understand it. I'm sorry, I thought you were talking about the prosecutor's statement. No, I'm talking about the statement by the trial court. Uh, During cross-examination, your predecessor objected to cross-examination by the assistant district attorney, indicating that he'd asked for all statements. And the trial court s- said, he has a statement which was furnished to the court, but it doesn't help your client.
1: The, the suggestion of the judge as he goes on is, I'm not saying it's necessarily a written statement.
3: No, but ha- wasn't it clear? St- I'm sorry.
4: I, well, I don't know what it could mean. He has a statement which was furnished to the court. Mm. Well, what could that possibly refer to?
1: It could be a written transcription of an oral statement. Uh, What is clear from the record, Your Honors, is that both the trial judge and the state habeas uh, counsel uh, and, in reviewing the matter, the Federal District Judge found that it was not at all clear that uh, a written statement existed. Indeed, the trial attorney, as late as the state habeas proceedings, said, I think I got all the written statements of uh, the witnesses. I had an agreement about that with the Mr. Straup actually testified in state habeas proceedings that he had concluded that the other matter being held in camera was some hair sample reports, uh, that there were other issues that were being pursued, and he was not getting a response on that uh, that issue. Uh, there is simply nothing in the record uh, that makes it clear that there was a written statement. If there was, we would have turn, turned to it immediately. Indeed, let me ask this question of the court, in a sense, rhetorically. Uh, the prosecutor turned over every other document in this case. Is there the slightest doubt why he held back this one piece of information? Is there the slightest doubt whether the State's Attorney General, when we asked for all documents, should have turned it over? I don't think so. And I think the reason it was held back is clear. It was a smoking gun. As the District Court found, it did point very strongly toward an ab relationship.
4: Do we know that this statement was in the file? and was withheld? Do we know that? Well, I mean we know it wasn't provided in the file, but do we know that the whole file that the prosecutor had was not provided?
1: Uh, we know that the prosecutor had this statement. We, during the f- uh, federal habeas proceedings, we discovered that he had several things he called a file. He said, I've got my file in this case, I've got my private file, uh, and, and indeed there was a distinction made there that we had never been aware of. And. Uh, but, but he never suggested that he didn't know about the statement, the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Indeed, he was present when the statement was taken uh, in August of 1978. Uh, if he was initially correct in simply handing it over in camera, he was certainly in error in failing to correct the record when the judge said, I don't know we're talking about any written statement. Or when the Supreme Court of Georgia said, the evidence uh, that you've sought came out in its entirety in the testimony of Mr. Evans. Because that didn't happen. Uh, and when we got and relied upon the statement of uh, Rich, uh, Nicholas Dumack that we had gotten the entire prosecutor's file in the case, the district judge ultimately held that was not inexcusable. Let me proceed, though, to talk about how the Court of Appeals analyzed this issue. When it came to the questions that the district judge had found no abuse on, no deliberate abandonment, it began its reanalysis as if the state's active concealment and its misconduct were simply irrelevant and as if the fact findings of the district judge had never been made. On both counts, of course, the Court of Appeals violated settled law. When the state's own conduct in litigation is blameless, as in the Wang du case or the Salinger case, it's, of course, appropriate for the district court to focus its attention exclusively on whether the newly available evidence uh, was available earlier and whether counsel's steps to find it were reasonable. But when, as in Price versus Johnson, there's a specter of state concealment, then that misconduct must be factored into the judicial inquiry on the question of abuse. And it can suffice, that state concealment, to excuse petitioners' failure to assert the claim. That's what, in the procedural default context, Amadeo stands for. The Court of Appeals totally overlooked, in short, the effect of the state's concealment here as it made its analysis. But the state actions plainly impeded and impaired counsel's investigation. The Court of Appeals simply didn't deal with that issue. The Court made a second error as well. It purported to determine independently that counsel for petitioner could have discovered evidence of the Messiah violation, specifically Ulysses Worthy, despite any state concealment. Yet Judge Forrester, who heard all of the evidence, made a fact-finding directly to the contrary. There is no showing, he says, of any reason the petitioner or his counsel should have known to interview Worthy directly. Faced with this founding, the Court of Appeals simply wasn't free to substitute its own view of the facts unless the finding was clearly erroneous. But Judge Forrester had seen for himself that Ulysses Worthy was tied to this case by a single thread. It turned out that it was in his office where the 21-page statement had been taken by the officers—a statement which I've noted we didn't realise existed and which was never turned over, despite numerous requests for
4: it—is that kind of a question? A question on which we only uh, we, we accept the uh, the fact-finder's determination. I mean, it seems to me that seems to me like a question of whether, uh, it's like a harmless error question. Would would a jury, even without this, have reached the same conclusion? Trying to. Uh, speculate as to what the state of the mind of the jury would be. We certainly don't, don't say uh, whatever the district court says on that, we're bound by. And I this d- is the same thing. I, d- d- I disagree, Your Honor,
1: and Amadeo uh, underlines the point. The question there was whether the incriminating jury memorandum was reasonably discoverable, whether it was likely to have been discovered uh, by, by counsel who, who went on a search for it. That was held by this court unanimously to be a fact-finding. What it really asked to do, and Judge Forrester was particularly well-suited to make this determination, is to look at the overall state of the record of the evidence that's already available, look at who the witnesses might be that would lead to other evidence, and make a judgment about whether uh, reasonable counsel should have followed those leads. Now, what was particularly unique about Forrester's opportunity is that he, he not only saw individual witnesses and passed on their credibility, in a sense, the entire conspiracy came into his courtroom. One by one, the state police officers who were responsible for these actions appeared before him under oath. And he watched as we, as the state, questioned these officers about the Messiah violation. And he watched as they built, brick by brick, a stone wall against inquiry.
2: Well, couldn't all of this had, had occurred uh, on a second? Uh examination of your Messiah claim and you would have just been permitted under the successive petitions rule to file a successive petition based on new evidence another another, another reason we're in this position is because the claim wasn't pursued at first we're not sure whether or not all this would have come out or not because uh, you declined to pursue the, the claim in the first habeas if you had done that run up against a blind wall and then found this out I I, I would assume that you would have not been barred by the successive petition rule.
1: Your Honor, we would have had no hearing in federal court if we had carried that claim forward. I've done capital cases for 15 years, primarily in Georgia. And if we had come in and said, we want a hearing on a Messiah claim, and Judge Forrester had asked, well, what what did you do in the state habeas court? You said, well, we put on the purported informant, we put on the prosecutor, who says there is no informant relationship, to my knowledge?
2: Well, well I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that the, the statement has come to light between the time your first federal habeas has been denied and your second and your second run at it.
4: If, that if you, wouldn't, had, you
2: wouldn't have been barred under if you had new evidence, as I understand the successive petition. will correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Well. If we had gotten, if we had kept the claim in the case, had gotten no further evidence, had gotten all the way through an initial federal appeal and the evidence had come to light, in a sense we'd be in the same position we're
2: in now. Uh-huh, but with one difference. We would then have known for sure that you could not have discovered this evidence if you'd have pursued your claim diligently. But, the but re- you prevent us from making that determination by not pursuing the claim. But the reason we made the decision not to pursue the claim
1: is that we've, we found after a serious inquiry, including putting under oath the responsible state official, the prosecutor, whom this court has held is charged with knowledge of everything that his police officers do. And that prosecutor said there's nothing there. The real question for this court on that point is whether it wants to fashion a new rule that says to defense counsel, you must pursue every conceivable claim past contrary evidence at all stages of federal habeas proceedings on pain of loss of the claim. If we had gone and gotten 20 depositions of jailers uh, in the Fulton County Jail, it would have been error.
6: Well, What do you think the standard is, uh, that counsel must uh apply some reasonable competence standard in pursuing these claims and investigations?
1: I think the inquiry that you outlined in Amadeo is adequate. You you do ask, uh, was counsel's investigation uh, adequate? Was it checked at all by state concealment, the failure of the state to come forward? And if the answer is yes, then you excuse the failure to carry the claim forward. But if Either the state concealment wasn't the explanation for your failure to discover the evidence, or if the investigation was inadequate and reasonable, then at that point, of course, the the court's free to to brand the claim as barred. And
6: what do we make of the 11th Circuit's finding that in any event, there is no reasonable likelihood that this new evidence would have altered the verdict?
1: I do want to get to the question of harmless error, Your Honor. Uh, The the, the Court of Appeals disregarded subsidiary fact findings on the question of harmless error that were made by the district court. But before I get to that Rule 52 problem, the state's case was threefold. The state had the uh, testimony of a co-defendant, one Ben Wright, who was the other most likely shooter, saying gratuitously, Warren told me that he did the shooting. That was highly suspect. The jury was skeptical of it, and the uh, the judge said it was uh, obviously self-surrogate. Then there was this conflicting evidence about who was carrying the weapon. The problem with that is that the state's witnesses couldn't all agree. Two of the furniture store employees said the man who came in the front of the store carried the silver pistol. But another one of the employees said the man who came in the back of the store carried what he called the chrome pistol. And someone who was outside said, I saw someone come running out the front with the pearl-handled pistol. So we've got a total uh, confusion of testimony on who had what gun. Now, Mary Jenkins purported to clear that out. She said Warren McCluskey was carrying the .38. But she was the girlfriend of Ben Wright. And on cross-examination, when she was asked, she was forced to confront testimony that when she was arrested, she told the police, my man Ben carried the 38, McCleskey totes the 45. So the state's witnesses were a cacophony of disagreement on who carried that weapon. What's left then? You've got the self serving statement of Ben Wright, you've got the other evidence. The key to this case was the confession that Ophie Evans came forward and said Ben Wright had given in the jail. He said that that uh, McCluskey had not only admitted the shooting, but he had bragged about it. He said he would have killed a dozen ben,
0: officers. Ben Wright had given a confession to Evans in jail? I'm sorry, uh, Warren McCluskey. McCluskey had given yeah. I, I misspoke, Your Honor. Uh,
1: no, Warren McCluskey, according to Evans, had said, I did the shooting, and I would have killed a dozen officers. This Court has written, I think, appropriately, that confessions are rarely harmless error in any case. But in a case like this, where the other evidence is so weak, uh, we think that the Court of Appeals uh, is, is profoundly an error to suggest that it would have made no difference at guilt or at penalty. Think with me for a moment about the penalty consequences. This court wrote in Satterwhite that it's much more difficult to assess harmlessness in the context of sentencing because a jury's discretion is so broad. What do we have on the issue of, of uh, harmlessness uh, at penalty? We've got a picture on the one hand of confusion without Evans' testimony, without McCleskey's confession, or with McCluskey's confession, we have a picture of a man who said, I did it, I would have killed a dozen officers. I don't think it takes any great imagination to suggest that that would have contributed to a jury's judgment on the issue of penalty.
4: It did refresh my recollection. Didn't they have an evidence of another confession? No. McCluskey had
1: confessed when he was picked up by the police that he was present at the robbery scene, but said, I did not do the shooting. The only other confession they had was Ben Wright's. If there are no questions, I'd like to reserve my time for rebuttal. Thank you.
0: Very well, Mr. Boger. Uh, Ms. Westmoreland, we'll hear now from you.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case comes before this Court, again challenging petitioners 1978 murder conviction and armed robbery convictions and resulting death sentence. Before I proceed to the issues, let me emphasize to the Court that we do not believe this is a case of state concealment It is not a case of state perjury and lies, as has been characterized by the petitioner both in the brief and in oral argument before this court this morning.
6: Well, uh, did the state have this uh, Evans uh, statement uh, in some file? Yes,
7: Your Honor. That is exactly what the state.
6: And did. the state told the defense counsel that they were turning over all the files and witness statements.
7: Your Honor, if I may clarify exactly what did take place in relation to Thank that, you. I think there are some pertinent facts the court needs to know. If I may, backspace to the trial for one moment. Counsel did present two documents to the trial court for an in-camera inspection. Trial counsel pep- for
0: whom? Counsel for the, the state. For the
7: state. The assistant district attorney. Trial counsel was aware of the fact that there were two documents. Trial counsel testified he knew one was some grand jury testimony, and one was a statement of a witness who was not named to him at that time. What
5: was it? This statement that was presented to the trial judge? Yes, Your Honor, it was the statement.
7: That is the testimony of Mr. Parker. Subsequently, yes. Your Honor, Mr. Parker being the assistant district attorney.
5: And then after that, when he was asked for the full file, he didn't include this statement.
7: Your Honor, I think it's misleading to say he was asked for the full file. That's not the request that was made of Mr. Parker. Mr. Parker's deposition... Let
5: me put it different. Didn't he say he turned over the whole file?
7: No, Your Honor, Mr. Parker did not say that. What Mr. Parker says, if you review, and I believe the pertinent part of his deposition, part of his deposition is in the joint appendix. His entire deposition is in the record. His deposition was taken for the state habeas corpus proceeding. At the beginning of the State habeas corpus hearing, Mr. straup requested that the Court do something in the way of either a continuance or delay the proceedings because he had subpoenaed Mr. Parker to come. He wanted Mr. Parker, he wanted the portion of Mr. Parker's file shown to defense counsel so he could use it to cross-examine defense counsel about the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. The continuance just was denied, but counsel was allowed to take the deposition of Mr. Parker, which was done in February of that year. Mr. Parker came to the deposition, one of the very first inquiries made by counsel for the petitioner was, do you have the file that I asked for, the investigative file that was turned over to Defense Counsel? Mr. Parker reiterates in his response, I have the file that I turned over to Defense Counsel. That is what I have with me. This is the same file that I turned over to Defense Counsel. It said several different times throughout this entire deposition. The agreement that was reached in that deposition was that a copy of the file would be substituted, and the agreement that was reached was we were talking about the file made available to Defense Counsel. There is no statement by Mr. Parker at any time that he's turning over the matter, which obviously was not in the file made available to Defense Counsel. That is the two documents part of the in-camera inspection. Mr. Parker goes on, and this is part of the joint opinion. May I
5: interrupt with a question? I want to, I'm trying to follow it. Are you trying to convince us that defense counsel was aware of the existence of this statement?
7: Your Honor, what I am trying to explain convince the court of the fact that defense counsel certainly was told there was a statement. Whether You're,
5: y- The done. answer is yes, you are trying to convince.
7: Both the district been. court
5: and the court of appeals found to the contrary on that. Is that not right? That's
7: correct, Your Honor. Okay, runner. so you're asking
5: us to disagree with the finding of fact made by the District Court and approved by the Court of Appeals.
7: Either disagree with that finding of fact, Your Honor, or, on the other hand, conclude if counsel was not subjectively aware of it, it certainly was not concealed from him, and the fact that he was not aware of it was not through any state concealment of this particular document in question. That's particularly the case when, during examination of the assistant district attorney during his deposition, The Assistant District Attorney specifically states, when you're talking about Afi Evans, there is a statement of Afi Evans. It was not introduced at trial. It's part of the matter of which the trial judge made an in-camera inspection. It says it point blank. The Assistant District Attorney acknowledges, this is in February of 1981, there's a written statement. statement.
4: Where does that appear, the statement that you're just referring to?
7: Your Honor, that testimony came out in Mr. Parker's deposition. It's at the joint appendix at page 25. And, and,
2: and, 25 and at what point in the proceedings was this deposition?
7: Your Honor, this was taken in the state habeas corpus proceedings. In the state habeas proceedings. The first state habeas proceeding in February of 1981. The original hearing on the state habeas petition was January 30th. The deposition was taken, I believe, February 16th.
3: And did he acknowledge that it was Evans's statement or just a written statement?
7: Your Honor, and if i He says Evans' statement specifically. I think that's virtually the only way you can read what a statement... Afi Evans gave his statement, but it was not introduced at the trial. It was but part of...
5: But the Testimony 25 refers to a statement from Ollie Evans that was introduced at trial.
7: Yes, Your Honor, but I think if you refer... If you look at the answer given by Mr. Parker on that very same page, Mr. Straub's questioning goes on further to talk about what took place at trial. Mr. Parker's response, and it's, it's the first answer on that page, refers to he gave his statement. It was not introduced at trial. It was part of that matter that was made in camera inspection by the judge prior to trial. That, to me, clearly identifies, first of all, John Turner, the trial counsel has already testified. He knew there was this written statement of somebody, Mr. Parker, who's just sat there and said that that written statement was of Offee Evans. Why do you it's suppose his counsel statement.
5: didn't say, may I see that statement?
7: Your Honor, I think that's a very good question. And you think we do they, not deliberately, know the answer they deliberately
5: decided not to take a look at it?
7: Your Honor, the only explanation offered by counsel was that counsel did not understand that that was what Mr. Parker In view was telling him. of his earlier
5: question, where he thought he was asking about a statement given at trial, he probably assumed the answer re- was responsive to his question.
7: Mr. Straub, I believe, testified before the district court that he thought the answer was not responsive to his question, and therefore he repeated his question which doesn't detract from the fact that Mr. Parker told him that it was a statement. Whether Council understood it or not may be a different inquiry. The point being that this is not something that the State has hidden away, has never told anybody existed, and never owned up to having in its possession. And, in fact, it was available, could have been obtained in 1981 the same way it was obtained in 1987 through the Open Records Act, there were statutory provisions. There was case law allowing access to this type of information once the conviction became final in the state of Georgia. It was not requested at that time. The
8: and request it's, is, it's the state's position that counsel made a mistake.
7: Yes, Your Honor, that's absolutely correct.
8: And this man shall die because of his mistake. Your Honor... Is that your position?
7: Your Honor, my position is that counsel made a mistake, that that constitutes an abuse of the writ... That there's no miscarriage of justice in this case because there is no question of Mr. McCleskey's guilt in this matter. Yes, Your Honor, that is our position in this matter. In reviewing the issues before the Court, again, it's important to look at what happened in 1981 and what happened in 1987. In 1987 is the time that counsel brings the Messiah claimed to the federal court for the first time after having raised it in state court, omitted it from the first federal habeas petition. The only thing counsel knew differently in 1987 was that he had access to this written statement of Afi Evans that he says he was that it's been found he was unaware of in 1981, keeping in mind nobody has found that that statement was unavailable to him in 1981, but simply that he was unaware of its existence. That's the factual finding which is, I think, a distinction between this case and Amadeo versus Zant, in which in Amadeo it was found not only was he unaware of it, but it was simply not discoverable under any means. That's not the finding in this court. That's not the finding that we have. In fact, the state—
5: Isn't, isn't there testimony—I I don't have it clearly in mind— that the prosecutor, in effect, assured defense counsel that defense counsel had the entire file?
7: No, Your Honor. What is referred to by the petition in that regard is a letter that's contained in the file that came after Mr. Parker's deposition— As we said, Mr. Parker's deposition was taken. He makes all these references. The discussion is had concerning the investigative file made available to defense counsel prior to trial. It was agreed a copy would be substituted to be attached to the deposition. For
4: the purpose of showing whether the defense counsel had uh, not well represented his client?
7: Yes, Your Honor. There was information there that perhaps he could have used better, used differently, something along those lines. That That was the purpose stated to the state habeas corpus judge for requesting the file in the first place. When the copy was sent, there was a cover letter sent with the copy of the file. That's what counsel refers to. The cover letter is sent to the court reporter with the file. The cover letter does say here is the complete file of Mr. Parker. A clear reading of what the record is is this comes on the very heels of the deposition in which the whole discussion takes place involving the file shown to defense counsel. That's whether it's an, incomplete, an inaccurate use of terminology it's simply not the question. The question is, looking at the exa- totality of what happened, it's clear that what the letter is referring to is this is a file we talked about in the deposition, which was the file made available to defense counsel. Here it is.
5: But it is true, isn't it? Just kind of looking at the picture of all the whole proceedings that went on, the only thing that never got in defense counsel's hands was this statement. How does that happen? I mean, genuinely, I mean, when a defense lawyer is trying to get access to all statements and a pertinent record... How does it just so happen that one very important document somehow gets lost?
7: Your Honor, this document, and there was also a portion of the grand jury testimony, which was not turned over to counsel. And again, it was part of the in-camera inspection, and no court has ever found a Brady violation by the failure to disclose this statement prior to trial. No, but form, he doesn't
5: have the burden of showing a Brady violation. He's just no. trying to explain why he didn't pursue this claim, and he says he didn't have a very important piece of evidence, and the state is responsible for not making it available.
7: And, Your Honor, our position You're saying
5: you're not responsible That's
7: exactly right, Your Honor What, What our position is, is that there was no right to that statement prior to trial No constitutional right to the statement prior to trial Once the trial was over and that there was a statement here saying that this There's testimony that this statement does exist Then at that point in time, the state does nothing to prevent counsel for the petitioner from obtaining that document Absolutely nothing is done by the state to prevent counsel from obtaining it a counsel asked at the time of the deposition of Mr. Parker, what was it that we were talking about? What was the in-camera inspection material? I don't know what the response would have been, but I assume that something would have been said to the effect of it was afi Evans' statement and grand jury testimony. That wasn't asked. There was no inquiry of Mr. Parker. What was part of the in-camera inspection? What are those documents? That wasn't what counsel was even looking for at that point in time. When it came up to the time in 1987, Council made a request under the Georgia Open Records Act from the Atlanta Police Department, I might point out, not from the District Attorney's Office, was provided with the statement and then, based on the statement alone, filed the federal habeas corpus, the state and federal habeas corpus actions, raising them sigh violation at that point in time. The question then becomes, I think, what did Council know differently in 1987 than what he knew in 1981? The only different thing that he had at the time that the petition was filed raising the Messiah claim is this written statement of Afi Evans. We disagree with the characterization of the statement in that the statement of Afi Evans does not tell counsel that much that he did not already know. We already knew that Mr. Evans was in the cell next to Mr. McCleskey, that there were conversations between the two of them. If you read the cross-examination by the district attorney at the trial of the case, the district attorney injects a lot of the information. The district attorney makes inquiry of the petitioner. Didn't someone in the cell next to you tell you he was a relative of Ben Wright? The petitioner responds, no, that never happened. Didn't, didn't you tell someone something about having your face made up? No, I never said that. A lot of this inquiry comes out in the cross-examination of the petitioner who, ironically enough, denies and ever having made these statements, denies even remembering Ophie Evans being in the cell next to him, and knows nothing about it.
0: Did McCluskey take the stand at his trial?
7: Yes, Your Honor, he did. He testified both at trial and at the state habeas corpus hearing in 1981. When Mr. McCleskey testified, he denied ever having been present at the store at all, having any participation in the trial the crime whatsoever, denied any of these conversations with Mr. Evans and then he later hedged somewhat and said, well, there were some conversations, but I never said anything incriminating and certainly don't remember any of this that you're talking about with, with somebody talking about a relative of Ben Wright's or something along those lines. The most that the statement provides, and at the beginning of the hearings in the district court in 1987, the concern of that court was some indication that there were two meetings with Mr. Evans, that Mr. Evans met with the officials once, went back, and then met with him again to give his statement and perhaps obtained information between those two time periods. That's not new information either. Mr. Evans testified in the state habeas corpus hearing that he met with two detectives. He met with Mr. Parker. He indicates that he's at least seen somebody with either the police department or the district attorney's office on two occasions, again giving rise to the question of what took place in between these two times, if anything took place in between these two times. The statement itself simply is a more detailed explanation of what council already knew, with some very minimal additional facts that we submit does not come, give rise to this great new burst of light uh, to justify raising a claim in 1987 that you didn't raise in 1981. It simply is what not. Do you, what
6: do you think the standard is that we apply in evaluating these abuse of the writ claims?
7: Your Honor, in relation to counsel's conduct, particularly, there are several different areas from which this Court has drawn standards. I think one more particularly appropriate, Rule 2C of the rules governing 2254 cases refers to raising claims and issues of which, through reasonable diligence, the petitioner, or in this case counsel, Well, is have had a knowledge. reasonable
6: competence standard, basically?
7: Yes, Your Honor. I think that's accurate.
6: And... Um Uh, Was there a determination in the courts below whether that standard had been met, do you think?
7: Your Honor, the District Court found that there was not inexcusable neglect on the part of counsel was the terminology utilized by the District Court, but the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals said, we disagree, we do not find that counsel engaged in a thorough investigation. They did not use the terminology reasonably competent counsel. Well, if we
6: think that's the standard, what should we do here?
7: Your Honor, I think this Court can certainly examine the record itself based upon the findings made of the Court below and determine as a legal matter whether the reasonably competent standard has been met. It is not a pure factual finding. Obviously, it would be a mixed question of fact and law, similar to um, ineffective assistance challenges under the Sixth Amendment, and certainly could be examined from the record before the Court. The Court certainly has the option of remanding for consideration under a different standard if the court feels that that is necessary.
4: Counsel, uh, somewhere along the line, do you have any comment to make about pending legislation in Congress?
7: Your Honor, I assume the Court is referring to uh, former Justice Powell's committee and the legislation that's being submitted in along those lines. Your Honor, I don't think that that necessarily will have an impact on the outcome of this particular case under the factual circumstances of this case, and I don't – I would hesitate to suggest that the court uh, either wait on legislation because we do have a case that is ripe for adjudication under the facts that we have, and I also think that this case can be resolved based upon the existing case law that is presently pending, presently before the court, and available for its use.
4: Well, it's possible if you prevail here that, and uh, that legislation is passed, it uh, might be a meaningless uh, prevailing. As I understand it, uh, uh, bills have passed both the House and the Senate, although they're different.
7: That's correct, Your Honor. That's my understanding. I'm not that familiar with the individual bills, but I do i believe the Court is correct. I don't recall that the bills would address the precise factual situation that we have here, or certainly not.
4: Uh, have they come out of Conference complete. Committee?
7: I, I don't know, Your Honor. I'm not certain of that at this point. The has taken great issue in the abuse of the writ question with the 11th Circuit's resolution of certain matters, asserting that the 11th Circuit has ignored factual findings by the I, district. I
8: take it you are <coughs> defending uh, <coughs> the Seventh, not only the, seventh, the 11th Circuit's judgment, but uh, its reasons.
7: Yes, Your Honor. I think its reasons are quite justifiable.
8: So, and uh, you don't claim that uh, under 2244 that this successive petition should be Uh, Should be dismissed because uh, uh, the new factual ground was deliberately withheld.
7: Your Honor, I think that is one basis upon which this decision can be affirmed. However, well, if
8: we accept accept the findings that the that uh, the defendant uh, didn't know about this. about this new factual guarantee presents, I can't, you can't say it's deliberately withheld.
7: Not under the traditional meaning of deliberate withholding. Well, as, as well set but the Sanders. 2244
8: says deliberately, with, uh, deliberately withheld or other abuse of the writ. So you must be relying on or other abuse of the writ. That's
7: and correct. And tell me
8: what the abuse of the writ was.
7: Your Honor, I think it's a twofold aspect in this particular case. The withholding, whether deliberate or otherwise, of the claim is a facet of the abuse of the writ in this case. That is, that there was a claim. The legal issue was known. For whatever reasons, it was not presented in the first federal habeas corpus proceeding. Is certainly the first facet the of the The legal issue abuse. was,
8: but the, the, the factual matter that he presents was, was uh, something he didn't know about.
7: This particular factual matter, certainly there was there was information there sufficient for counsel to raise it in the first state habeas corpus proceeding. He felt he had an right, raised right, then. Ahead,
8: go ahead. So he, he, didn't, he didn't present the Messiah claim in his uh, first uh, federal habeas? That's
7: part of our claim. The second aspect then goes to would be why counsel did not present it. And our position is because the investigation conducted by counsel in 1981 was not adequate, was not reasonable under what term, whatever terminology we, you wish to use to come up to a standard to excuse the abuse. In other words, counsel's conduct amounted to inexcusable neglect in failing to obtain the information necessary to present a messiah claim. We're not standing here and going to tell the court that he necessarily would have found Ulysses worthy in 1981. I can't tell the court that, but neither can the petitioner say he would not have found Ulysses worthy in 1981. Mm-hmm. The inquiries necessary... Well, they
8: talk to, he talked to some... Uh Some police officers, uh, he just didn't get around to talking to Worthy.
7: Your Honor, I think that what's pertinent here is to examine what counsel did not do in 1981. Counsel says he talked to some members, some officials at the jail. I believe two or three was the wording used. Mm -hmm. Now, whether counsel got around to Mr. Worthy is not really the pertinent question. The pertinent question is what was there that could have been done in 1981?
8: Do you think that uh, that, that, uh, there was ineffective counsel? in this case.
7: Uh, Your Honor, I'm not, I would not go so far as to say the Council was ineffective under a Sixth Amendment standard, but certainly I think Council lacked and failed in to exercising reasonable diligence in finding the information present here. The, the key fact that no one did in 1981, that was done in 1987.
8: Well, the Eleventh Circuit seemed to, seemed to say that because uh, because uh, the, the, the Messiah claim had been made once uh, and had been rejected and the Council uh, that that Nevertheless, there was no excuse for counsel. Just because he thought uh, it, was, it was a poor claim, it was, there was no excuse for him not presenting it in the second, the second time.
7: And that was one of the bases for their decision. They did go on to, to find fault with the investigation conducted by counsel and note the numerous things counsel did not do in 1981 in the investigation in making this decision not to pursue well, the claim. Uh,
8: I suppose the Court of Appeals didn't need to go on and say all that. I thought it said that... Uh, just because he knew of the claim and it had been presented once, he should have presented it in the first federal habeas.
7: Your Honor, again, I think that's, no matter a, what. that's a part of their decision. They, they part, actually make a, wasn't it
8: wasn't an independent ground?
7: They make a three-pronged analysis, Your Honor. First of all, they disagree and conclude that there was intentional abandonment. The court then concludes the counsel did not make a sufficient investigation uh, so as to excuse otherwise abusive conduct and then in any event finds that ends, the ends of justice would not require consideration of the claim by finding that the claim would be harmless error uh, under the prevailing standard.
5: On the second prong, what do you understand the standard of the Court of Appeals to be? with What is the duty of counsel in making an investigation? Your All runner. they said was they didn't make a thorough investigation of the facts.
7: Your Honor, in reading the Court of Appeals' opinion while they use the word thorough investigation, it appears that they are examining the question of what was reasonable for counsel to do. They don't articulate it in that fashion, I, w- I will acknowledge to the Court. The words they use are thorough investigation. I don't think that's imposing some sort of strict liability standard as has been suggested by the uh, amicus It Speria. almost reads
5: as though the failure to discover the key facts is enough to kill the claim.
7: Your Honor, I think if you read particularly the footnote in that opinion where they're talking about the failure to do various things—it's not just the failure to discover key facts, but it's the failure to pursue other avenues that were available in 1981. I think most most particular, one of the things noted by the Court of Appeals and that we have noted in 1981, the jail records were available to show why Alfie Evans was in the Fulton County Jail to begin with, why he might have, where he would have put it in the Fulton County Jail. You could have seen Did whether he had been moved. Those records
5: disclose the name of Worthy.
7: Your Honor, we don't know that because those records... That's don't the big available. thing they missed,
5: I guess, was not interviewing him. Is there any reason to believe they could have found him on the basis of any of those records?
7: Not on the jail records themselves, necessarily. His name might have been reflected on. The problem we have in 1987 is that during the normal course of normal retention schedules of the Fulton County Departments, obviously they do not keep these records forever. Those records don't exist anymore. They did exist in 1981. I believe the information as part of them were destroyed in June of '81 and some others were destroyed in 1986. Well, how
8: did they find him uh, later, Worthy?
7: Worthy was found later through the testimony of one of the detectives at the federal habeas corpus evidentiary hearing. Mm -hmm. Again, and this is another aspect which we submit counsel should have pursued. When Mr. Evans testified in the state habeas corpus hearing, he mentioned two detectives by name, Detective Dorsey, Detective Harris. Detective Harris was not talked to by counsel at that time, was not called as a witness, was not offered to testify to anything. When Detective Harris was called to testify in 1987, Detective Harris took the witness stand, discussed the fact that they went to the jail to talk to Mr. Evans, which seems a logical conclusion if you have an inmate in a jail with information. He was asked where it took place. He said it took place in Captain Worthy's office. That's where the name Ulysses Worthy comes from. It's from Detective Harris, when asked, telling them exactly where this conversation occurred, in whose office it took place. From that, the petitioner went and subpoenaed Mr. Worthy to come in and testify as to his knowledge of the events that took place. And our position, based upon this, is that if they had talked to Detective Harris, he very well could have mentioned Ulysses Worthy's name. Whether counsel would have gone on to interview Ulysses Worthy is not the state's burden; it's the petitioner's burden to prove that he would not have known to go ahead and take that further step. And is it your
2: position that none of these factors are linked to the 21-page statement,
7: Your Honor. No, that is correct, Your Honor, that these factors are not linked to the 21-page statement. The 21-page statement was apparently what caused Petitioner to re-raise the Messiah claim in the first place, but that doesn't get you to the point of finding Ulysses worthy. No, Your Honor, it does not. If I may briefly comment on the harmless error question as it was raised and discussed by the Petitioner, we would submit, first of all, that a review of this record shows that what the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals did was referred back to its original en banc opinion in reviewing Mr. McCleskey's case on the first federal habeas corpus action, which they investigated and reviewed thoroughly the testimony of Afi Evans and its impact on the trial. The Eleventh Circuit acknowledged the difference in the standards that it was concerned with. The first trial, we're talking about United States versus Bagley. The second trial, Chapman versus California, harmless error. But the Court went on in looking at its own prior findings, concluded that under the circumstances of this case, that the testimony of Afi Evans, even if improperly admitted, and we certainly do not concede that it was improperly admitted by any stretch of the imagination, would be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, focusing on all of the factors at trial, including the fact that the evidence showed the fatal shots were fired from a 38 caliber Rossi, that the evidence showed clearly two eyewitnesses, Mr. McCleskey's own statements to the police, and the testimony of Ben Wright, that Mr. McCleskey came in the front door of the store while the other perpetrators came in the back door of the store, the testimony of the witnesses at the crime that the shots were fired from the front of the store, the testimony of the two eyewitnesses in the front of the store who saw Mr. McCleskey with a silver gun in his hand, the testimony of the witness at the front of the store outside who saw a man running out with a gun with white handles, the testimony of witnesses from a prior armed robbery positively identifying Mr. McCleskey as the individual who committed that robbery and stole during the course of that robbery a 38 caliber nickel-plated Brazilian-made revolver, and a Rossi is a Brazilian-made revolver. Now, the testimony it does, Mary Jenkins places the weapon in hands of Mr. Wright and Mr. McCleskey. Stating that, well, the last time she'd seen been right with it had been over a week ago, but Warren McCleskey did have the silver revolver. And then Mr. Wright himself also places the weapon in Mr. McCleskey's hands.
8: If the prosecutor knew all of that, why did they violate the Messiah rule?
7: Your Honor, our submission, of course, is they did not violate the Messiah rule in this case. We have disputed the well, findings of the district court. I your position
8: court. was that you couldn't raise it at this late point.
7: That's also our position. Are
8: you going to the merits of
7: the Messiah Room? No, Your Honor. All at this time I'm talking about is the harmless error question. The prosecution also only used Mr. Evans' testimony in rebuttal after Mr. McCleskey took the stand and repudiated his own prior statements. Mr. McCleskey had given two statements to police saying he was there, he participated in the armed robbery. Excuse me, one statement where he says he was in the front of the store at the time the shots were fired. One more detailed statement saying, I was there, I went in the front of the store, I participated in the armed robbery, but I hid under a sofa or a bed at the time the shots were fired and I didn't do that. When he took the stand at trial, Mr. McCleskey says, I was not there at all. I had absolutely nothing to do with it. I was over at my sister's, I was over at some friends, establishing an alibi defense. It was after that testimony that the prosecution brought Afi Evans in, come in to impeach Mr. McCleskey's own testimony. In fact, the trial court at that point gives an instruction to the jury that this testimony coming in after the defense is closed is being offered for impeachment purposes only. That's when Offie Evans is brought in to testify and to make his statement that, no, Mr. McCleskey told me that he actually was there, he participated in the crime, and he was the trigger man to this case. Under the facts, as we're looking at the entire proceedings, we would submit that it's clear that, first of all, there was an abuse of the writ in this case based upon counsel's lack of reasonable diligence, based upon counsel's choosing to abandon the claim. And we would thank the Court for its consideration and urge the Court to affirm the Eleventh Circuit's opinion. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ms. Westmoreland. Mr. Bogart, do you have rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. I have
1: answers to three questions posed by different Justices. I'll try to be brief. Justice Kennedy, you asked whether there was any link between the 21 page statement and worthy. The answer is yes. Uh, Harris only gave the name of Worthy when asked, where did you take the 21-page statement? Until you had the statement, you had no predicate to ask that question. And therefore, there was no reason to link Worthy to the case. Justice Scalia, you questioned uh, about whether the witness statement uh, uh, was referred to as one of the matters that was her, uh, in it reviewed in camera. Uh, and I gave some answer to that. Uh, as I thought about it when I shut down, 96 witnesses were endorsed on the uh, indictment in this case, but only a dozen or so testified at trial. The testimony of John Turner, the defense counsel, in state habeas proceedings is as follows. I entered into agreement with the prosecutor, whereby he had agreed to give me copies of the statements prior to the witnesses' testimony, meaning the witnesses who testified, And I think he gave them to me all that first day, that Monday. So I think that I knew what would have been the actual statements for everybody who testified. See, he's operating on the assumption that whether there might have been another witness statement of those 85 witnesses who didn't testify, he had gotten the statements of witnesses like O.P. Evans. Did Evans testify on the the first day? Evans did testify, Your Honor. On the first day? Uh, not the first day he said I, mean, on f- I,
0: thought, I thought what you just read said he 'd gotten the statements of the witnesses and testified on the first day. no,
1: what he means, I believe your Honor. The trial began on a monday, and there 's some uh, it 's on page eighty eight of the uh, state habeas transcript, but uh, the trial be- not the joint appendix, Your Honor, but the state habeas transcript. He says the first day of trial, I got all the witness statements, so I felt I was well prepared uh, in fact he didn 't get evan 's written statement Finally, let me ask or answer. Uh, Justice O'Connor, you raised a question about whether the reasonably effective counsel standard was at all...
4: Uh Excuse me, I'm, I'm not sure how that fits in with... Uh, what, what does that show? Does, does that show that the state was therefore in bad faith? He was just under a misimpression as to what he had received. That still doesn't mean that when, when the information is later turned, turned over and the affiant says, I, I provided the entire file, this is the entire file that I provided to him, It still wouldn't make that a lie, would it? I don't think we need to make uh, affirmative lies Mm -hmm. at every point. We do, of course, have the underlying
1: lies and uh, misstatements of Detective Dorsey. Dorsey had committed a Messiah violation. He apparently had misinformed the prosecutor. We're
4: talking about a cover-up afterwards. That's That's right. Of course, he
1: misinforms the prosecutor who then says under oath in the state habeas Mm -hmm. proceedings there was no informant relationship. He's speaking for the state as a whole, as Justice Stevens has written under the Sixth Amendment, When the state speaks on a question like this, it has to answer for its errant police officers as well as for its core prosecutors. Giglio held the same thing. Our suggestion, our our submission, uh, Your Honor, is that there was enough state uh, concealment here, enough misrepresentations and half-truths and partial answers that... uh, on an equitable matter of abuse of the writ, we should not have our client go to the electric chair because we couldn't ferret through this game of 20 questions that was being played by the state. They had the statement. They knew it. They knew it bore on the Messiah violation, and they didn't turn it over.
4: Mr. Volker, okay.
1: <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I was simply going to respond to Justice uh, O'Connor's question about standards. On page 84 of the Joint Appendix, uh, when uh, the district judge... Uh, addresses the question of whether uh, counsel's conduct was inexcusable. He's, he recites a standard drawn from a then-current case, the Moore case, and says that the uh, defendant is chargeable with counsel's actual awareness and with the knowledge that would have been possessed by reasonably competent counsel. So having addressed that matter, he finds no inexcusable neglect. I'm sorry, Justice.
4: Do you have any comment
0: about the pending legislation?
1: Your Honor, my understanding is that legislation may have died uh, in committee uh, and would have to be resuscitated uh, beginning in January.
0: So neither one of you
7: really know. No, we don't. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Boger. The case is submitted.